This is InsureTech Radio, episode number one, with me, Connor Sweetman. This week's guest is Jerry DeVere. Jerry, welcome to InsureTech Radio. How the hell are you? Very good, Connor. Thanks for having me. So, how would you define InsureTech? Um, in its simplest term, in, InsureTech is technology and insurance. You know, it's a it's the two words going to melt it together, and it's an extension of things like fintech, which would be well well known. In fact, some people would believe InsureTech is a subset of fintech. But in in real terms, it's really about new and innovative um, technologies helping to um, support existing or new insurance products and processes. So it's really just bringing together technology and insurance. Um, it, it's also strange for people like me who've been around technology and insurance for a long time. You know, years ago, I was a COBOL programmer in a life insurance company in Ireland. And, you know, that was technology for insurance, although the term insuretech didn't exist. So that's a fairly long answer to a short question. Do, do you remember when you first heard the term insuretech? Three years ago. It would have been towards the end of 2015. I was starting to look at the startup space um, and I knew about fintech. And so I was listening to podcasts and getting information about the fintech space. And then I heard people subset it down to insuretech. Initially, really interested in banking technology, which was very big at the time. Um, it still is, obviously, with the challenger banks in the UK. Um, but then it kind of became apparent that if you understand an industry like insurance, it makes more sense to try and do something in that insurance tech space. So that's kind of how the interest grew. Do you feel like like it's underserved? Is that where you're going from? There's not as much attention going into that as maybe banking? I think insurance and banking are two very different industries. So in, in simple terms, you'll interact with your bank a lot more than you'll interact with your insurance company. So, you know, the customer perspective on it is is quite different. And you're right in that the, the banking space was fairly saturated at that point with all the challengers, particularly in the UK. Whereas in the insurance space, um, things were different. And the insurance industry was still ticking along nicely on on processes that had been around in some cases for hundreds of years you know they're delivered in different ways but technology hadn't really made a significant impact on the insurance industry so i think it was ripe for change um, and i think it still is it's a it's a relatively slow process we're seeing more change on the consumer side but but on the on the business to business side it's it is a relatively slow process when you say consumer side like uh, what exactly do you mean right so um most people who don't work in the insurance industry are familiar with buying their car insurance or buying their house insurance or buying travel insurance or you know maybe pet insurance something like that so it's it's the kind of insurance that you would consume as an individual whereas yeah. within the insurance industry there's a whole complex um, delivery path that goes from one insurance company to another or from a broker to an insurance company and from an insurance company to a reinsurance company. So there's a lot of stuff that goes on between insurance companies that isn't immediately apparent to people who are not familiar with the industry. So my, my point is that the technology that we've seen so far tends to be around the consumer-focused um, products like um, short-term car insurance or insurance for delivery drivers. 
Uh, yeah, because I, I kind of they're the ones I would have noticed. Like it seems uh, a lot of the development so far has been focused on, as you say, consumer. I would have kind of called it more distribution. I suppose you know getting the products to the consumer, um, and nearly from the consumer's point of view, the I suppose their journey feeling like they're dealing with a tech company. But then once you actually get under the hood of this, you know, app or website or or whatever, it's still. It, it's still actually very clunky software that's under, underneath it. It's it's still the same antiquated process with just a little shine on it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you're you're absolutely right about the delivery, and I think one of one of the driving factors of technology in that space was getting new customers, so getting access to customers that wouldn't normally buy insurance. So companies like Lemonade and Trove, for example, would have achieved great investment because they would be pointing out that they can get people into the insurance market that are not currently in the insurance market. So, for example, in the U.S., I think, I don't know the statistic off the top of my head, but there's a very low occurrence of people having renter's insurance, so what we call content insurance if you lived in a a rented accommodation. So people just didn't bother. They didn't understand, really, that it was there or what the benefit of it was. And so when it became something you could get on your iPod or your well, not your iPod, sorry, something you get on your iPad or your <laughs> iPhone or whatever, you know, suddenly people were more interested in protecting the valuables that they had. They're protecting the thing that is literally in their hand as they're purchasing the insurance uh, over the internet. Yeah, very much so. And companies like Trove, I think, have really tapped into that. And so they'll They'll realize even in the case where a, a renter, again, typically in the U.S. market, doesn't want to take contents insurance in the sense that we would, but they they might have a $3,000 MacBook or a $2,000 bicycle or a pair of binoculars or a camera or a telescope or something like that. Yeah. So there might be individual items that they would want to protect, and some of these items they will take outside the home regularly. So you might have a case of someone who's never bought insurance before, but then suddenly realizes with a little tap on my on this app on my phone, every time I walk outside the door, I can insure my bike or my laptop. And when I come home where I know it's safe, I don't really want to have contents insurance, so I just turn it off and I get charged a dollar and a half for the day or $5 for the week or whatever it happens to be. So that was a whole new market that didn't exist. And it does pretty much all come back to the point that you, you'd said about delivery to customers. Now that's a really interesting idea and business model. I'm just thinking like how they think about underwriting that, uh, not just risk to risk, but you know, from a, uh, across their whole account. I wonder how they think about quantifying risk. And uh, Well, to, to be honest, the insured techs themselves probably wouldn't. Hmm. Um, so if you, if you think of the insured techs as providing the technology, they don't typically write the cover themselves. They don't typically have the capital to back a risk, and they're not typically regulated to write risk in whatever jurisdiction uh, the company is working in. And what this leads to is a partnership between insured techs who have the technical ability and the skills and perhaps the idea and the ability to to write the software or deliver the product and an incumbent company who wants to get that product to market and has the distribution channels and has the regulatory approval uh, and is licensed to write business in a particular jurisdiction and also has the capital to back the risk to meet that regulatory requirement. So there's 
there's much more of a symbiosis, I think, between startups and incumbents in the insurance world than perhaps there is in the in the banking world. Oh, really? When I think of the word disruption, I think of Uber and I think of um, businesses like that who come in and they completely change a whole industry. Whereas this, you're saying it. I get the feeling that you're saying it's less likely to happen in insurance because it's more. I suppose the the technology companies and the incumbents need each other in a way. Uh, but I, I, I didn't, banking didn't come into my thought process there. How, how do you think about that? Yeah, so, so when I started looking at, at banking a couple of years ago and just what was going on, there were lots of challenger banks, particularly in the London market. So there are people like N26 and Starling and Monzo and now we've banks like Revolut. Um, what they were effectively doing was replacing or offering all, pretty much all or most or all of the functionality of the high street bank online on an app. And while the bank, the high street banks were closing their, their branches, these banks were small and lean and they were popping up purely online. So there was no physical branch and they were using technology so that you could see every transaction that hit your account. You got notification on or you had virtual cards that you could use once on a website you weren't sure of um, and then destroy them and they would never be used again because they only existed virtually. So they, they came up with products that were effectively mimicking or replacing what the high street banks were doing. And once they were regulated to, to do that, then they were in direct competition with the high street banks. So they were competing for the business. To go back to my point about, about insurtechs, it, it's, it's quite difficult to start an insurance company. It's particularly difficult in Ireland. It's difficult in, in any country. You know, you need to be regulated. And part of that regulation says you need to prove that you have the capital to pay the claims should they come in. Yeah. So it, it's a complex process. It's not easy to, to start an insurance company. It's probably not easy to start a bank. But I guess, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it, it's been done a little, a little better. Um, so what tended to happen was that the insurance the, the insured tech companies would, would partner with incumbent insurers because as an insured tech company, you, you understand technology hopefully and maybe you have an idea for a product or a process or, or a way to improve the existing um, delivery system or the, the existing business-to-business communication. Um, but what you don't have is enough capital, particularly as a startup, to, to back a risk. So you would never get regulated as an insurance company because if you had the millions that you'd need to cover all the potential claims you might have, or a large portion of them, then you wouldn't really be a startup because you'd have plenty of money anyway. So so the cooperation between startups in InsureTech and the incumbents, I think, is just is really the only way to do it. Yeah. You know, it, it, if you're a, an insurance company it's hard to find money to speculate on technology. It's actually easier to do that as a kind of an investment venture than it is to give, let's say, your in-house IT department an extra couple of million to go and try an idea. And yeah. if they fail, then they just get a pat on the back for trying to be innovative. That, that doesn't work like that. The internal IT departments, like I can tell you from experience, have very rigorous budgets that the those responsible for have to you know, go through in detail and account for every expenditure. And those budgets are considered operating costs, operating expenses that, you know, get scrutinized. So you, you can't really speculate with that. Whereas uh, venture capitalists will be, you know, yeah, they're, yeah. They're, I suppose they're looking at maybe over 10 years or, or however long they're going to be invested in a company. They're like, right, lads, go nuts, or yeah. you know, to an extent. But, um, you know, use the money to actually try and build something as opposed to, 
maybe a big insurance company penny pinching to an extent? Exactly. Well, well, there's two things. The, the venture capitalist is, is looking for a 10x or a 100x exit, and they would have different timelines on that. But they're literally just looking for an idea that that grows and scales to the point that they can take a risk on an early investment and when that's massively successful, get out with, say, 100 times their initial investment. But the thing is, they'll probably take 40 or 50 of those those risks. And if five out of the 50 are profitable, then that's how they make enough money to, to speculate and take those risks. On the incumbent insurance companies, I don't think it's necessarily that they're that they're penny pinching. I mean, they, they are penny pinching on operating costs. And your in-house IT is typically an, uh, an operating cost that gets pinched pretty badly. But a lot of the incumbent, insurance companies and the big financial houses you know some are insurance companies and banks or, or they serve multiple markets but they typically now have ventures arms so they would use some of the cash that they have lying around to invest in in businesses and particularly in businesses that support their own industry because that might give them a first mover advantage for example so it, it's not so much that the companies are, are penny-pinching on investment in general. It's just that it's easier for them to allocate that investment from a, a venture side of the business as opposed to an operating IT side of the business. Yeah, I see, I see the distinction there, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and actually, if you, if you look at it from a board of directors perspective, you know, the, the non-exec directors or the external directors of, of a lot of these insurance companies will be reading about insurance and technology and new things that are happening and maybe they're even seeing new things themselves maybe their their insurance company is delivering a product in a new way or offering them new options or offering them short-term insurance so when they go to a board meeting they want they want to know what the insurance company they're on the board of is doing in that innovative space so it's much easier then for the company to say look well our ventures are invested in these five companies and you know four of them didn't work out one of them was profitable um, and even if all five didn't work out, it's still a great story to tell that you did actually try and innovate because eventually you will you will get there. Yeah. Um, that's a that's a win for the board and the senior management, even if the insurtechs are not successful. Whereas if they try sometimes to innovate in house, it's viewed as an operating cost that went wrong. We started this project, we put a million dollars in it, it went nowhere. That's a really bad thing. As opposed to we we bought an insurtech, we invested a million dollars. It looked really interesting. It went nowhere, but aren't we great for taking the risk and <laughs> trying and failing and trying again? Yeah. You know, the same amount of money, same company, totally different story. One of them is a pat on the back and a bigger bonus for the senior management. The other one, somebody loses their job. <laughs> or yeah, or many people. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's uh, such a subtle distinction, but also massive. Um, that I hadn't I hadn't really fully appreciated that before. A lot of people listening to this will, will be trying to find their way in the insure tech area and try to figure out what's going on. But so in terms of qualifications, do you, can you tell me a bit more about the one that you went for after uh, you finished up at um, uh, Renaissance Re and then how that uh, helped you in the end? Yeah, I have to say I, I kind of fell into it a little bit. Um, I had a lot of experience, you know, 20 20 odd years of experience in insurance and reinsurance companies in IT. So I, I would have started out as a COBOL programmer back in the 80s and then I worked through networking, project management and managed teams that did QA and DevOps and ultimately I was responsible for managing the teams that supported all of the global infrastructure for, for Renry. 
which is really interesting. And I'm, I'm not typically a hardware guy, but it was, it was interesting to bring a software approach to a hardware job. And I had an amazing team, you know, two amazing teams basically that, that were incredibly technical and incredibly capable. So, um, when I took the, the redundancy package, it was kind of like a semi-retirement in a way, although I knew I didn't want to stop working. Um, did a couple of things that I, that I wanted to do. And then, uh, somebody brought this course to my attention. It was the Innovation Academy, which I think was a, a joint venture between Trinity and UCD, although this was specifically around UCD. And it was really to kind of encourage people to start their own businesses. So there's quite a broad spectrum of people in there, quite a broad spectrum of uh, backgrounds in business, um, not too many in tech. Um, some people who hadn't been in business at all, some people who had been in business and retired and then wanted to get back into it. So it was quite diverse, and I found it an incredible program because it really broadened my horizons. You know, I, I would have opinions on things based on my life experiences, and then when you're sitting in a room with a bunch of people who are of all different ages, different backgrounds, different nationalities, who look at the same thing and tell you what they see and it isn't what you see, it's, in, it's incredibly enlightening. Can you give um, does any particular so, example or moment stand out? Um, oh gosh, there are so many. Um, it, yeah, it was interesting that people would ask me things about having spent so long in a corporate environment, particularly around job interviews and things. I did some mock interviews for people. You know, I would I would interview them as a as a practice for them going to a job interview. You know, that kind of thing. Well, yeah, um, I, I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, it's it. it <laughs> You know, it, it meant a lot to some of them, particularly the younger ones. I, and in fact, actually, that's probably not a great example because a lot of people would, would have been more focused on starting their own thing than actually getting a job. Yeah. Um, but now, let me think about that. I'll come back to you with a better example. <laughs> and so what type of things did the course cover? Um, it covered creativity and entrepreneurship. So there were lots of lots of exercises to get you to think differently and think out of the box as they say um and then it, and then it covered what happens when you have an idea how do you how do you assess that idea how do you formulate it how do you then start to communicate that to other people um there is a, a really good tool called the business model canvas which people might be familiar with that we use a lot of what's that from a company called strategizer it basically analyzes all the different elements of the of the idea why why are you doing this how are you going to get delivered to the customers so like a um, series of questions kind of to, to assess yeah, your idea. Yeah, it's kind of a, a graphical thing. Mm. If anyone wants to look up Business Model Canvas, there's some good YouTube videos that talk about it. Um, but it really kind of helps assess an idea and helps assess the concept of a small business as, that, as to all the different elements of, of how, they, how the business hangs together. And that came off the back of really some fundamental teaching about how you would bring an idea to fruition. Um, there were, I think, five key questions that you had to answer. I always remember this was drilled into us. So the, the, the first one was, I hope I can remember these now. The first one was, what, what problem are you trying to solve? Great question. And then the next one was, who has that problem? So who's your customer? Yeah. And the third one was, how do they solve that problem now? <laughs> that's Which a, is really interesting. That's a very then, nuanced question, actually, yeah. Because like, yeah. well, why are you different, essentially? Exactly. Why are you different? What, what's your what's your USP? Um, which which is actually the fourth question. So, how do they solve it now? Why is your solution better? Oh. 
Um, and, and the one I'm missing is, um, will they pay to have that problem solved? Because that was another thing. Somebody might have a problem, you might have a solution, mm. but will they actually pay to have that problem solved? So what, what, problem, are you, what problem are you solving? Who has that problem? Um, will they pay for, for the problem to be solved? How is it currently solved and why is your solution better than the current solution? I think that was the five. Cool. And uh, tell me about uh, your uh, current job now. Yeah, so in the last couple of months, I have been um, working very closely with some guys that I've known for a long time. Actually, one of them is, is my former colleague from way back in sepia times when we were teenagers working for an Argentinian life insurance. Um, and the startup is doing data analytics. What's the name, for, sorry? Yeah, the name of the startup is Describe Data. Cool. Um, what we're doing is we, we are delivering a... Um, a an analytics engine. So we are helping to create what we call insights, which is another, I guess, overused term. So can, um, can, I, can I just uh, ask a question? Yeah. It might be silly, but I was going to ask, what is an analytics engine? Yeah, great, great question. So it is a piece of software that effectively analyzes data. Okay, so you put in a load of data and it will, uh, and you what make up rules and or ask it questions? Yep. That's that's pretty much it. So cool. in in a nutshell, you will bring some data, let's say, about the types of insurance you have or the customers that you have, and we will supplement that data with external data sets that might be from governments or from academia or that we've created ourselves, proprietary data or data from um, certain elements of social media data, not not just generic social media data. And what we'll do is we'll build up layers of, of data on top of your data, and then we'll run algorithms that will involve things like we spoke about earlier about artificial intelligence. We'll talk about machine learning, um, a thing called NLP. We use natural language processing. And basically, we will we will look at that, either the book of business or the potential risk that you're deciding whether to write or not, and we will hopefully be able to tell you some things about that book of business or about that risk that you you didn't already know or that are not immediately apparent. Cool. And that's what we call it insights. So the, the engine is called Comprino, which um, Where'd you get that uh, name from? is the Esperanto word for insights. Esperanto <laughs> is that kind of generic language. But, yeah, but yeah. the idea is that we, we look at a, a set of data. We can use it to solve a specific problem. Um, typically, we use it for a specific line of business, so it'll it works on lots of different lines of business. Um, we've done some very deep analytical work on terrorism. We've done a lot on UK health and wealth data, and we're working right now on cyber, particularly on developing our own proprietary data sets because there's not a lot of historical cyber data out there. Um, just a quick point on the insights. So when you are analyzing data, you, you are giving information to underwriters like yourself, who will, who will make a decision. I think one of the mistakes that some of the data companies, the analytics companies do, is that they feel that they can automate the underwriting process or most of it all the way through. And, and as you will know, and most underwriters will tell you that knowing something about a risk is the most valuable thing. Knowing as much as you can about a particular risk is, is the most valuable thing. If a risk is deemed to be poor or a bad risk or something that you on paper, doesn't look like like something you should write. 
doesn't necessarily mean that an underwriter won't write that risk because there are other elements involved. Um, sometimes an underwriter will write a quote-unquote bad risk uh, because if you if you examine that risk in isolation, it might be considered bad. But if you examine it in relation with in relation to the rest of the book of business, it might be a good risk. It might involve some risk aggregation, which basically means they might have a lot of exposure in one area and they want to take a risk in another area to counter that. Or it might even involve uh, a bigger deal in terms of marketing so you know they might be building a relationship with another company or another broker and so they'll take on some business that might not be in its own right a really good idea but longer term it's it's the right thing to do a little bit like a lost leader or a little bit like the insurance company we spoke about earlier who would insure uh somebody's laptop or bicycle when they're younger and maybe lose money on that because ultimately further down the road they're going to be a better customer Mm. Yeah, and so 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 your clients then would be insurance companies, say for example, to, trying to develop a cyber product. Yes, brokers, insurance companies, reinsurance companies. Okay, and like, would they? Uh, at what stage do the companies use it? Do they use it in like product development, or is it literally as an underwriter is looking at a risk, he can refer to your tool? Uh, at what point do, do does it help them? I would largely say. In, in terms of evaluating a risk. Hmm. So in, in, in simple terms, if they're looking at their book of business and they want to identify perhaps areas in it that they, that they have a suspicion that they maybe have too much cover or not enough cover in, um, particularly things like silent cyber, which is, which is cyber that isn't explicit hmm. in a policy. So, for example, you might have a business interruption cover that's been renewed every year but doesn't explicitly include or exclude cyber. And now, if if you get a business interruption as a result of cyber, the insurance company might be liable, mm. whereas they've never been liable on that before. Yeah. So, really, it's, it's analyzing the book of business. It's analyzing new risks coming in. <laughs> could you use for product development? I, I guess you could, yeah. I hadn't really thought of that as a key market because I guess it's such a new... Um, it's such a new tool, particularly around cyber. But yes, product development could be a. Yeah, I suppose uh, I, sh- I wasn't thinking about it in terms of well, when, I, when I said product development, I kind of more meant um, again from an underwriting point of view. If you're uh, developing a product and you're trying to maybe in advance assess um, what kind of uh, loss ratio you may have on a book of business, so it's more yeah, from that point yeah. of view that I was thinking about. No, I. I, I Absolutely agree. I, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but it could very well be. We yeah. may have another revenue stream there, Connor. There you are. It's a good idea. That one's for free, Jerry. <laughs> You'll be on commission. Very good. <laughs> Cool, Jerry. Well, we might leave it at that. And um, have you any parting words for our audience? Keep an open mind. If you're in business, if you're an underwriter, if you're a senior or mid level person in the insurance industry, now keep an open mind as to as to what technology can do to help solve the problems that you have. And if you can define the problem, I think somebody can help you with the solution. Um, we touched on this a little earlier. Sometimes people will come with a solution um, and that doesn't help. If you can come with a problem, somebody will come up with an innovative solution. Great stuff. Thanks for that, Jerry. No problem. Thank you for having me. Great. See you again. Bye-bye.